0: My view on chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME, has really changed since studied lifestyle medicine. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio.
1: I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Dr. Tila Consagra has been a medical doctor for 15 years and currently works as a GP specialist in chronic fatigue syndrome, slash ME, and fibromyalgia in London and Hertfordshire. She turned vegan five years ago after developing issues with her own health and never looked back. She is now board certified in lifestyle medicine and has a certificate in plant-based nutrition and likes to incorporate lifestyle medicine into her consults. She works privately as a health coach and is known as the plant-promoting doctor. So in this episode, we talk about Dr. Consagra's own journey into plant-based diets and veganism, and we learn how it affected her health. We also talk about whether it is something that she feels is well-known among the medical community where she lives. And then we get into what she does on a daily basis, which is treat patients with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. So we talk about what the definitions are of chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, what may be believed to be the root causes of these conditions, the prevalence, and also what she uses as a treatment approach. For these patients. And then we talk about what she wishes more people knew. And I think that this is a really important episode because I honestly didn't know that much about chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. It's not something that is super common in pediatrics. So I haven't really learned about it. And I think that it's also, as Dr. Consagro was talking about, something that isn't well known or talked about. And there's still quite a bit of stigma that is associated with these conditions. So I hope that this is a good educational episode for you and that you're able to learn more about these conditions. And if you feel that you may be affected by these conditions to reach out for help. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. And I hope that you have a very fantastic day. Remember that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment by healthcare professionals. So if you have concerns about you or your child's eating, nutrition, or growth, please consult a healthcare professional. Dr. Tila Kansagra, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great being on here. Well, I am so excited to get to know you. I have lots of UK friends that have been on the show and we always have the best conversations. So this should be really good. And we have not on the show talked at all about chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia. So this will be an excellent topic to cover. But before we get into that, I really want to know the background. How did you discover plant-based nutrition? And how did you transition to a plant-based diet and how has it affected your health personally?
0: So it's a bit long-winded because I yo-yoed throughout my life. So um, my family are originally from India and um, they were Hindu by birth. So um, there's a concept of ahimsa, I don't know if you've heard of it, of doing no harm to all living beings. So that concept was always in my head, but we grew up eating meat, but outside it was never cooked in the home. So it was things like McDonald's, Burger King, which weren't essentially good for you. Um, And my grandmother in her room, she had all these gods lined up. So every time I'd go into her room, she'd say to me, go and wash your mouth first before you come in my room. So I kind of felt like this is not something right that I'm doing. And then when I was in school, um, we had a book club and I bought a book by Linda McCartney on vegetarianism and A to Z of um, recipes. So I turned vegetarian at the age of 10. I kept that up until the age of 18. And then I started university or college and the plant-based options weren't that great. I think I was influenced by, you know, the culture of everybody going out. So then I started eating meat uh, again. And I didn't realize at the time that um, actually it flared up quite severe acne for me. Just when I found my partner, he was an avid meat eater, um, also from an Indian background. But I always had that concept of ahimsa in my head and thought eventually, you know what, I will turn vegetarian. And my sister-in-law is vegan and she's sowed a seed. Um, she went to India and just mentioned how the cows were being treated in India, which I was quite surprised about. And then at the time, there were lots of documentaries on the environment coming out. Um, so I think it's just over six years ago um, that kind of like the cogwheel started turning. And I saw an advert for Veg Pledge from Cancer Research UK come up on my phone and I thought, you know what, it's time to try it. And I asked my husband and he goes, yeah, I'll be all for it. Let's stop buying meat in the house. If I want to eat it, I'll eat it outside. And that kind of started my journey into veganism. And then, you know, once you start going down that rabbit hole, you know, you see more and more documentaries. I came across Anne Esselstyn's YouTube channel. That's very much where it started.
1: Wow, that is a journey. You had lots of fits and starts, but I think you knew eventually you were going to get there. And I agree. I think college is such a hard time to transition, lots of peer pressure. You just want to fit in. And definitely back in the day, there weren't as many options. I will say that now it's becoming so much more available. My son, he is a freshman in college and university. And the thing that's most heartbreaking to me is that the plant-based food is so good at the cafeteria that I'm afraid he doesn't miss my cooking. So anyway, there's pros and cons to there being good plant-based options now. But at his university, they have a whole part of the cafeteria dedicated to plant-based food, which is amazing. So- it's amazing.
0: And I kind of wish I was a university student now because a lot of universities are actually, like Warwick University has pledged to become fully vegan by, I can't remember what year, but by by a certain amount of time. And I'm like, this is an amazing time to be in.
1: Yeah, it's it's happening so quickly too. So let's go back to that last part. So you said that your acne had flared in college when you started eating meat again. Whenever you finally did the full transition to plant-based nutrition, did you notice any changes in your health at all?
0: I had been yo-yo dieting my whole life, basically. I had always had issues with my weight and um, I've had two children and after my second child I probably was at my unhealthiest in terms of my health not in terms of you know any major conditions but I had you know functional gut disorder, acne flared up again, um, mood disorders, things like that and um, I did a conventional diet, I tried a keto diet. um, And I did lose a little bit of weight. um, But those symptoms didn't go away. Then I challenged myself, actually, when I, you know, decided to go vegan and follow that veg pledge, I had no idea of how I was going to do it at that time. And kind of just challenged myself that you know let me try and have more whole foods and not rely on the processed um, meat alternatives in the supermarkets and it'll be a lot cheaper that way um but then i was just surprised at how quickly the weight was dropping off and also just in terms of how good i felt in terms of the amount of energy i had um the functional gut issues got better my skin looked so much clearer as well um, and I managed, um, I managed it all through diet, which is quite surprising. Yeah.
1: And especially you were already a physician at that point, right? You're already a practicing physician.
0: Yes, but this is not something we learn in medical school at all. I tell my patients that we probably have maybe one hour of nutrition training through university. and it's on, It was on vitamin C deficiency or scurvy, which we hardly, hardly see in Western countries. So it wasn't very useful. And so, you know, I had no idea. When patients used to ask me, you know, what's the best diet, doctor? I'd be like, low fat. But what does that mean?
1: Yeah, it's incredible how much we don't understand about nutrition <laughs> coming out of yeah. medical school and residency. But hey, I will say scurvy is coming back. It's making a comeback. So at least that the knowledge we gained in, in medical school, we could start applying, unfortunately, in pediatrics. There have been some cases in children with severely restricted diets, kids with autism, things like that. So unfortunately, we do still see it. It's still pretty rare. What's more important is how we can learn now after training on our own, what we eat, the habits that we have can be so incredibly powerful. And that's where lifestyle medicine comes into play. So tell me, how has learning about and personally experiencing plant-based nutrition and becoming certified in lifestyle medicine changed? your medical practice and tell me about that journey and transition, transitioning into becoming a health coach.
0: We have an organization called Plant-Based Health Professionals UK and I know several of the members have come on your podcast. So I was always aware of them and I did the Winchester Plant-Based Nutrition course. I didn't do the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine course then, um, but I was working at a hospital at home service where they try and prevent elderly people from going into hospital. And my um, manager was just going around, going, We've got a vacancy in chronic fatigue syndrome service. And, you know, she said, would you like to, any takers, would anyone like to interview and apply for this job? And I was like, no way, I don't want to do it. I, you know, find it quite difficult uh, to deal with patients with the condition. And I apologize right now because that was a complete misunderstanding. But my friend was sitting opposite me and she said, you know, Tila, have you not thought about how this ties into lifestyle medicine? And actually it would be a really good pathway to practice what you preach. And then I thought, actually, I didn't think of it that way way. I had a look at the job specification and I said, that this is very lifestyle medicine orientated. They have a multidisciplinary team, although there's no dietitian, but there's you know occupational therapists, psychologists, and it's the pillars of lifestyle medicine. So I applied and my friend also encouraged her other friends to apply as well. So we're both in a job share together and I absolutely love it. We don't have that much time to follow up patients. At the moment, uh, we tend to diagnose patients and follow up those where there's some uh, medical review that needs to be done but um, you know we do talk about the pillars of lifestyle medicine so at least you know we can give resources and we have the luxury of time with our patients because in general practice or family doctors um, in the UK and I know it's very similar you know worldwide we only have about 10 minutes uh with a patient, so you know we're able to spend an hour with a patient um, and actually you know take a very holistic view. Um, so you know I really really enjoy the job and I I apologise to patients because you know I used to think oh you know heart sink how how am I supposed to help somebody with with chronic fatigue? Does it get better? But I'm really realising now, you know, how the six lifestyle pillars do affect um, fatigue and actually the biggest thing is patients want to be heard. You know, they feel that they're being dismissed, it's an invisible disability and, you know, just to say and take out the time, you know, and just say, look, first of all, I want to say that I believe you, you know. and I'm not dismissing you. I just want to make sure that we haven't missed anything else important that needs to be treated. So yeah, um, my view on chronic fatigue syndrome or ME um, has has really changed um, since I, you know, studied lifestyle medicine.
1: Wow, that's beautiful. And I'm so, I'm sure those patients are so grateful to have you as a compassionate provider who is willing to take time and sit and listen and sort through all of the things that have already been done and evaluated. Because by the time usually patients get to this level, they've already seen several doctors and providers and all kinds of things. But I think you have a point and something that I've been trying to say for a long time is that I think lifestyle medicine belongs in every single specialty from the beginning to the end and in between. Like, I think surgeons should know about lifestyle medicine. I think everybody should know about lifestyle medicine, every physician, because it applies to every single human and every single condition it can at least improve your life or optimize something in your life. As you've gone through this and learned more about plant-based diets and lifestyle medicine, um, have you seen that the benefits of plant-based diets are becoming more widely recognized by physicians
0: in your community? Or do you think there's still a long way to go? It is, but there is still a long way to go. Um, I'll talk about within my own specialty the evidence is only as good as the research done and in terms of chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia there isn't much research into lifestyle medicine and how that's impacted it was thought to be and stigmatized as a mental health condition we now know that it's more complicated than that um and i don't mean to upset any male uh viewers, but it mainly affects women. And, you know, if you look at the research about conditions that do affect women, such as, you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome, I know, you know, it can affect men as well, but um, the evidence is lacking. So at the moment, the focus may be that this is a chronic condition, which many people don't get better from. But, you know, more research needs to be done to prove. I, I refuse to believe that you know if something like something tangible like diabetes or hypertension can get better, and you know the same diet helps so many chronic diseases, why would it not help you know ME, CFS, or fibromyalgia? Mm-hmm. So that that's my take on it. But I'm always truthful with patients in terms of expectations and say that, look, um, I can't say that the best lifestyle is going to prevent everything, right? The people with the healthiest lifestyles can go on and have cancer, but it's about stacking our cards right. And even if this doesn't fully take away um, your symptoms, our health is not static, You know, uh, we can develop other conditions as time goes on. And, you know, we want to try and prevent that because that's something else that's actually causing more uh, disability, causing um, more issues in terms of uh, symptom management and quality of life. Um, So that that's my take on it. And it's usually received um, quite well. Make people think of the word disease. So every single condition can cause fatigue, right? And disease is exactly what it says on the tin. It's disease. You don't feel well. So you know, if we tackle everything holistically, hopefully, you know, things can be a lot better.
1: Yeah, I love that reminder in that. We can be empowered to change our habits and behaviors, even if it's not going to contribute an incredible amount of an improvement to the condition that we now have. At the very least, we can continue to prevent some other conditions that could come up as we age and as time goes on. And sometimes through the habits that develop from conditions, right? Because sometimes you can have a condition and develop a habit to cope with the condition that actually gives you another condition. So I think all of that is important to remember. Well, let's get into talking a little bit more about these conditions, speaking of conditions. So what is chronic fatigue syndrome? So tell us a little bit more about that, like the definition of it. Um, And I guess you've kind of already talked about why you're so passionate about it, but maybe give us a little bit more background on what the trajectory is for a patient, what it's like for them as they develop chronic fatigue syndrome and going through the healthcare system.
0: When people think of chronic fatigue syndrome or ME, they think of what the media has portrayed in terms of films where people have very severe symptoms. And whilst that is true, people can have very severe symptoms. There's a spectrum. Uh, and as I mentioned, it's an invisible disability. So it's a syndrome and and the most categorizing uh, symptoms are um Post-exertional malaise. So when you um, do any sort of physical activity that is not, you know, very taxing, you're not running a marathon, but it could be something as simple as walking up a flight of stairs or, you know, opening up your dishwasher and loading it, that you become fatigued. And often that fatigue is delayed in onset, so it's not immediately after the activity, and the recovery can take a long time. Um, many patients say that they have to they have to plan activities. So it may be that they, you know, if they go out and meet their friends, they know that they'll be on the sofa for four days and won't be able to go to work the next day. Um, So that's one of the symptoms. Then there is brain fog. So you have cognitive difficulties, you may find it um, that it takes you longer to register things or hard to concentrate, Um, difficulties with memory as well. And then there's unrefreshing sleep. So it doesn't matter how long you sleep for and how restful that sleep is that you feel unrefreshed in the morning. And it doesn't have to be, you know, you lose sleep, you could have hypersomnia, so you're sleeping a lot more, but still that sleep is um, not refreshed. Um, Those symptoms, all three of those symptoms have to be there to varying degrees. As I mentioned, um, you know, you can have mild, moderate or severe symptoms. Many, many uh, patients actually are working, they can go to work, but it's the personal activities that take a toll. They're not able to go meet their friends or go out or or do anything like that. Um, And then there are other associated symptoms um, that can happen at varying degrees. So uh, postural Um, orthostatic tachycardia. So when you get up, uh, your heart races, that can be a symptom. Temperature hypersensitivities or having issues with headaches, functional gut disorders, all of those. Um, And you can also have um, widespread pain uh, across the body as well. Um, Lots of different associated symptoms. Um, as well can be categorized in the disease, but you have to have the first three that I mentioned, the uh, post-exertional malaise, the brain fog, and the unrefreshing sleep. Wow.
1: That sounds incredibly miserable and like torture, especially when you're tired, you don't feel good, but then you try to sleep and the sleep isn't making you feel any better. It's like a vicious cycle that never ends. So I can imagine that this is a very desperate feeling. I also imagine that there's probably a high amount of depression or anxiety associated with this condition?
0: Yes, correct. Um, But I would say that it is a separate entity to anxiety and depression. As I mentioned before, there was this lack of understanding of the condition and still is to some respect thinking this is you know just a mental health condition, go deal with it. Um, and I try to destigmatize the condition by saying to patients that whether a condition is tangible, like you know you've got an objective measure like diabetes where you know you can check someone's HBA1C, say you're diabetic or pre-diabetic, whereas in chronic fatigue syndrome, It's more of a subjective diagnosis where, you know, there's no measure of it. Um, There's no test that we can do. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. But whether a condition is tangible or intangible, there's lots of factors that affect it. Some are not under our control, but, you know, I use the um, concept of epigenetics as well into how we can try and influence, um, influence this in factors that are in our control. Do we understand anything
1: about the root cause of chronic fatigue syndrome? Is there an autoimmune basis, a hormonal basis, or is that still something that we need to discover?
0: It's still something that we need to discover. I mean, initially, it was um, postulated that it's a condition caused by a virus, an unknown virus. But we all have thousands of viruses that we Get throughout our lives and how resilient we are to those viruses differs amongst each other. Um, we s- saw that with uh, COVID as well, right? So, you know, I kind of use that to empower my patients when not going to know any time soon what causes the condition. Obviously, you know, more research is going into that, but we need to focus on the here and now in terms of if you have developed these symptoms or this syndrome of of, of symptoms, that how best can we move forward? Um, But it's postulated that it's because of a viral trigger. But What's very common amongst our patients is that there's some sort of trauma in the past and it may be some sort of event like a virus or a life event like, you know, a stressful job or a relationship breakdown, for example, that um, might have triggered uh, the symptoms to then suddenly manifest, although this might have been building up for some time.
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating. Do you have any stats on what the prevalence
0: is of chronic fatigue syndrome? I think last time I checked, um, 0.9% of the population, I think it probably is underdiagnosed and may be less diagnosed in certain ethnicities and in certain ethnic minorities. I don't know whether that's a case of knowledge about the condition or, or stigma about the condition, but it um, it's reported to affect all ethnicities equally. Um, but it... <sighs> But that's not what I'm seeing in practice. So I think, you know, I, I think there needs to be more outreach about the condition and, you know, make sure to ensure that patients don't suffer in silence. People don't suffer in silence. And there's a lot of help out there that wasn't there before. Yeah. I'm Latin
1: American. So <laughs> I could see that in the <laughs> Latin American community, especially if you have, you know, a parent or a grandparent from, you know, a, a older generation. That it would be one of those things like uh, just get over it and stop complaining. You know, you don't have that. Same thing with mental illness is one of those things that there's a lot of denial and uh, just non acceptance of certain conditions in certain communities. So I could see that definitely in my community being the case. Well, tell me about plant based diets and lifestyle medicine and how we can use those to help treat chronic fatigue syndrome.
0: So we have guidelines in the UK and I'm sure it's similar in America. So we have got an organization called NICE, uh, which is kind of the pinnacle of our guidelines. There's no one diet that's proven for chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia. The guidelines just mentioned a healthy diet. But we know from, you know, various studies of other conditions that how whole food plant-based nutrition can help. Some common deficiencies I do see are folate deficiencies. And we know that, you know, that's abundant in green leafy vegetables and legumes and often, you know, diets can be lacking in that other nutrients of concern are uh, ferritin so iron um and you know i educate patients about how best to absorb that from our diets you know there's a popular myth that you know um People should be consuming red meat and processed meat in order to get um, enough iron. But we know the dangers of heme iron or the associations with it. Um, So how best to actually get non-heme iron from the diet? Um, So that can be very helpful. And then other nutrients of concern we have to look at like selenium and iodine. And I'm of Indian ethnicity and in our diets, it's quite... um, many of the indian population are vegetarian and don't necessarily consume things like fish for omega's and and consider you know iodine as well so i do educate about that as well and it's really important not to take a reductionist approach when it comes to our health so often lots of patients come to me on you know lots and lots of supplements and they're eating certain things uh, superfoods so you know goji berries or help but not looking at their overall diet or restricting um, having restrictive diets where you know I can understand the need f- to find something that will work so you know avoiding gluten or avoiding legumes or whatever it is um, and they don't get better so I try to educate about looking at the overall picture and making little steps towards uh, improving that as opposed to you know just looking at one or two things that they can do to try and improve their health.
1: Yeah. What about exercise? It sounds like from the definition of chronic fatigue syndrome that doing exertion can make it worse. So is it still something that is recommended as part of the whole treatment regimen or not really?
0: So yes and no. So in the guidelines, um, there used to be something called graded exercise therapy, where you got people to actually get to a level of exercise. Now that's taken out because we know it's counterproductive um, and can lead to what we call boom and bust cycles. So exercise is a pillar of lifestyle medicine we know that you know it helps with things like mental health just being outside but I try to get my patients to focus on the fact that you know if you have a car you're not going to run it without any fuel so the same goes for our body if we focus on the output which is the exercise I know it's a bit of an input as well right but if we focus on that without actually focus on what we're feeding our bodies then we're not going to have the energy to be able to do that so I always focus on the mental health first the nutrition first and the exercise Hopefully, gradually will come, but I work as part of a multidisciplinary team. So, we have a physiotherapist as well. So, you know, it's important to take the knowledge of all of these uh, different specialties in terms of the approach that we take. And the, the approach should be individualized, right? So, one size doesn't fit all. You know, not everybody is going to be able to walk up and down their street or run a marathon. We have to look at where the person is at and, you know, hopefully make steps to get them to where they want to be often there's this kind of feeling of you know patients will say to me that i used to be able to cycle or i used to be able to play the cello and and that's their goal but i try to a study show that people that are more flexible in their thinking. Um, Because life changes for all of us, doesn't matter if we've got chronic fatigue syndrome, ME or fibromyalgia, but, you know, life changes and it deals us new cards. And actually, you know, we've got to people who are flexible in terms of seeing a new normal, you know, it may be that they won't be able to ride a bike, but actually when they're a bit better, they may want to be a patient advocate for the condition, for example, and put their efforts in that way. The aim is not always what their baseline was before they got ill.
1: That can be really tough to hear too, you know. Tell me a little bit more about the mental health approach. And I know that one of the big pillars of lifestyle medicine is connection. So is that something that you work on with your patients
0: as well? So as I said, I work as part of an MDT in two places, um, dealing with ME, CFS, and fibromyalgia. And we have psychologists that are involved. They do do individual therapy, and there may be a CBT approach, cognitive behavioral therapy, but there is some trauma-informed work as well. But in terms of connection, there are a lot of patient advocate groups um, that you know, are really, really good resources, a way of networking for patients, such as in the UK, we have the ME Association and BACME as well that do run groups. There's also the Salus Fatigue Foundation. So, you know, having a network of individuals or support group is really, really important. And we know, you know, using the Blue Zones as an example, they are effective because so many people, you know, are living the same lifestyle and supporting each other in that lifestyle. So yes, net, uh, healthy relationships is really important. In some circumstances, we can't help, right? If someone's alone or a single parent, it may be quite difficult uh, to access that help or support network. Um, but there is, there are things out there. Yeah. But at least
1: getting that reminder to be mindful about it and how important it is and how it can make a really big difference. And that recovery journey to have community and have support.
0: Because they have this boom and bust. Like when they have low energy, they're low in energy. But when they suddenly have energy, it's kind of feeling guilty for the activities that they didn't do. So it will be like, well, I need to go to the gym today or I need to clean the house today. And actually the friends and the relationships take a sideline. So, you know, it's important to focus on the fact that that is another pillar, that is something that is going to make you feel better. So actually do prioritize that, you know, call your friend for five minutes if you've got time or if they're meeting, you know, prioritize that, you know, you can clean your house another day. So that's a very, very common pattern we see as well in clinic. Yeah, that's
1: important to know because I can imagine that If you've been down for a while and you feel like you haven't been able to do anything and you suddenly get that surge of energy and then you might actually overdo it, but then you're not actually filling yourself up in the other ways that can continue to support your recovery and your improvement. So that can be really tough. Well, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about fibromyalgia. So what is fibromyalgia? How is that diagnosed and what's the prevalence of that?
0: So the prevalence of fibromyalgia is slightly higher than chronic fatigue syndrome or ME, but it's got a similar demographic. It affects females more than males. It is a chronic primary pain syndrome. What that means is that there's widespread pain that is not secondary to another condition. So, you know, not due to an inflammatory arthritis such as rheumatoid arthritis, although you can have those conditions, as well as uh, fibromyalgia, you need to make sure that they are well treated. There tends to be widespread pain, which is out of sync of the stimulus. So, you know, you could touch someone lightly and that reproduces the pain or they may knock themselves and it causes, you know, the pain, um, excruciating pain. there used to be this uh, criteria of of measuring it by doing uh, trigger points. And, you know, people would commonly be uh, referred to rheumatologists to to check these trigger points, but that's no longer a way of diagnosing the condition. So, we normally do a um, symptom severity score. So, uh, there's a questionnaire which uh, looks at, you know, how many areas of the body are affected by pain? It tends to, you know, affect the upper body, the lower body, as well as the back as well. And other associated symptoms, there's some overlap with chronic fatigue syndrome as well, with the brain fog, unrefreshing sleep, anxiety, depression, functional gut disorder as well. So that's how it's normally diagnosed as well. And very similar to chronic fatigue syndrome and ME, as I mentioned before, there's not much evidence out there in terms of lifestyle medicine, because again, it the condition had been stigmatized previously as being a mental health condition. But actually, we know that it's more complicated in terms of the pain pathways and what's affected. And it's actually, I had a meeting with a colleague recently, um, a rheumatologist, who mentioned that they've got Research emerging that it should be treated as an inflammatory condition. And actually, every chronic disease is rooted in inflammation. So it, it doesn't sound very surprising to hear that.
1: Yeah, that's something that I was actually wondering about earlier in our conversation that, you know, just seeing the foundation of it as inflammation, even though we may not understand where the inflammation is stemming from. And that's why some of these habits and behaviors may help. Talk a little bit about using a plant-based diet in the treatment of fibromyalgia? What have you seen and experienced there?
0: So compared to uh, ME-CFS, actually there is some evidence in terms of plant-based diets and uh, fibromyalgia. Although the studies are quite small, you know, usually the patient population is about 50 patients there are studies looking at raw diets, for example, and uh, improvement of fibromyalgia sev- um, symptoms, and, you know, the results are promising. And, you know, even though we can't base recommendations on these small studies, there isn't actually anything to lose, really, because if you think about it, the same diet would help with cardiometabolic metabolic. Uh, factors as well. Um, And commonly, from these studies, uh, these fibromyalgia patients actually experience loss of weight uh, to get to a healthier BMI, reduction in cholesterol levels, improvement in diabetes, as well as pain. So, you know, the evidence is positive uh, with regards to fibromyalgia. And I forgot to mention that actually one of my colleagues is working in an area in the UK where they're doing a study at the moment about the gut microbiome. And chronic fatigue syndrome, ME. So, slowly things are changing, but I don't know fast enough to make any recommendation. But as I said, you know, I don't think there is anything to lose, but more to gain from going towards a plant based diet. Yeah, exactly. It's
1: like it's worth a try, right? It's worth a try, see what happens. At the very least, it may help other things in your body. Usually, the side effects of a plant based diet, most difficult thing is just learning how to make the transition. But Fortunately, it's delicious, (laughs) so that's good. (laughs) Once you figure out that it's actually a delicious way to eat, it's not so bad. Well, talk to me about chronic stress. I know when we were talking about chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, you talked about triggers and life events, different traumas, Um, but what about the role of chronic stress in both chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and addressing that in those conditions?
0: Yes, stress does affect both conditions as it would any other condition. And there is focus on reducing stress um, in both places I work at. Um, We have, you know, mindfulness strategies uh, in order to help uh, stress um, as well as, you know, um, Uh, Using mind body techniques um, to provoke relaxation as well. Um, And as I mentioned, you know, the symptoms may be grumbling on for years, months, but there's often a trigger, you know, a a point where not everybody has it, but, you know, the stress is at its highest and therefore then all the symptoms actually manifest.
1: So it's good to pay attention to that and do whatever you can to manage that stress. There's certain circumstances in our life that we can't change but learning different techniques to help manage that stress can be helpful to so many things
0: well stress uh, is important you know we're you know it's a mechanism that our um, body needs in order to you know run away from a lion it's when it becomes chronic you know we can't change our circumstance we can't always change our circumstances right but we can change our reaction to them and you know we're all human even doctors so we're all learning and you know I say to my patients that you know just being on a plant-based diet is not going to completely rid you of your health um, problems. You know, we have to, I'm not going to cure s- some uh, traumatic event in your past by giving you a piece of broccoli. So we have to take all six lifestyle factors into account. It's powerful, but it's not that powerful, but it's no. pretty powerful. <laughs> broccoli is pretty powerful. <laughs> well, I can't convince my kids. I, so I, I will wish-
1: <laughs> I wish it could take away all my stress and that I would have all my problems solved. So, well, imagine that, you know, you're just meeting somebody just got diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia. What advice do you have for uh, where they should start? They're at the beginning of this journey of a diagnosis. What are some of the things that they can do?
0: It's hard because not every area um, has, you know, a dedicated chronic fatigue syndrome and me service. But what I would say is start off being kind to yourself. Like I said, my journey wasn't linear. You know, there were ups and downs. So not everybody is going to do this overnight, but it shouldn't be an all or nothing. So, you know, suddenly I'm going to take everything out of my cupboards, start making goji berry smoothing and start start doing yoga on the himalayas that will last two days and then you'll crash so making small sustainable changes what you think you can do so you know in terms of diet for example if you're used to just having a piece of toast for breakfast or a croissant you know change that to maybe um you know putting putting something plant-based on that toast like hummus and some tomatoes or getting some oats for example with seeds and fruit and then you know stepwise, make some changes in terms of your exercise. It might be that you or you know, all you can do at the beginning is sit outside, you know, and then slowly progress that to, you know, walking a bit. Um, I would really advocate for therapy as well. You do not have to have a mental health condition in order to, you know, gain help from therapy because, you know, normal is a myth. Because the dsm 4 criteria were made by, you know, a bunch of middle-aged, middle-class men. And most of us aren't that. I'm sorry to say that. So, you know, it's really important to not stigmatize it as if I go to therapy, that means there's something wrong with me mentally. I think all of us could benefit from it. So taking a holistic approach, you know, what is in control is what's on your plate the exercise you do, and also, you know, whether you can benefit from therapy and you don't have to pay for it. You know, there are certain things that the government um, provides, you know, in the NHS, we have the wellbeing service that patients can access. So there are all, all of these things, you know, you may not necessarily be able to get it from a Robust service like a CFS ME service, but you can get it in other ways. Saying that um, if you are suspecting ME CFS, um, it's important you go and see your doctor to do some baseline blood tests uh, for them to see you as well. Like I mentioned, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to make sure that there isn't anything else going on. You know, don't dismiss your symptoms, don't feel worried or embarrassed that it's nothing. And obviously, if you are diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, ME or fibromyalgia, there are a lot of support services and your GP will, ha- uh, will be able to, so your family doctor will be able to look locally as to what services are available.
1: I love that. That's a great approach. And I love that holistic approach. And I agree that I think therapy is for everybody. I wish we all had our own personal therapist that we could go to and get therapy and get our tune-ups when we need them. But I'm also a huge advocate for that because the truth is we don't learn how to manage our thoughts and feelings. We don't learn a lot of the skills and tools that can help us with just living a regular life in the modern world. So all of those things can be super helpful for someone that is trying to recover from a condition.
0: What do you wish more people knew? I wish more people knew about the condition. Like I said, it's an invisible disability. It may not be accepted in some communities or known about. I wish everybody would be accepting of plant-based nutrition. And, you know, often I find that actually patients are quite receptive to it but not necessarily all health professionals. Obviously, that's changing. And a lot of our guidelines are changing towards that, which is really, really good to know. But there's still a long way to go. Yeah, me too.
1: (laughs) Agree with you on both of those counts. Well, Dr. Tila, it's been great. I've been really, it's been very pleasant to meet you. And I'm really grateful for all the work that you're doing. This is very important work. And I'm glad that my audience is now learning about chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and the criteria, especially if some people might be suffering from some of these symptoms, hopefully they can reach out and get help and start to work on their recovery. And I would love to know what products and services you offer and how we can connect with you.
0: So I do work privately as a health coach. Um, I don't actually uh, treat clients that are in America or Canada, but I'm uh, I can practice worldwide and I practice remotely. And you can uh, find out about my services through my website www.plantpromotingdoctor.com. Um, I also have an Instagram page as well, which is linked to my website. I am happy to, you know, raise awareness about both of these conditions. Um, So, you know, if you feel that your organization would like a talk, then I'm happy to uh, to provide that wherever you are based and actually I do post a lot on uh, on my Instagram I do a um, Monday Mythbuster about common health myths including ones on plant-based diets so a good source of information there I'm going to try and do more things about uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia as well
1: awesome well thank you so much for your work Dr Tila consagra thank you for everything that you do and I hope that you have a very fantastic day
0: thank you you too